Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we cover everything to do with motoring and transport from the sublime to the ridiculous. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories with David Campbell, including Toyota to launch a road maintenance study in Japan. We hear the second report from Rob Fraser on the anniversary of Nissan's sports cars, this time the GTR supercar. We took a new Suzuki Jimny four-wheel drive to a car show, but it had to compete for attention with an old Daihatsu. We find out why when we talk to the owner. And Brian Smith joins us again for some quirky news. Now you can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you could go to our Facebook site, Overdrive City. But let's start the program with the news. UK drivers could be banned from using phones in hands-free mode following a suggestion from MPs. The House of Commons Transport Select Committee has said that current UK law creates the misleading impression that the use of hands-free phones is a safe driving practice. However, there is increasing evidence to show that hands-free usage creates the same risks of collisions as using a handheld device. In its latest report, Road Safety driving while using a mobile phone, the committee says that there were 773 casualties, including 43 deaths and 135 serious injuries, resulting from collisions where a driver using a mobile phone was a contributing factor. The committee is now calling on the UK government to explore options for extending the ban on driving while using a handheld mobile phone to include hands-free devices. It wants the government to publish a public consultation on the proposal by the end of 2019. The Queensland Trucking Association, or QTA, in partnership with the Motor Accident Insurance Commission, recently announced the Eyes on Fatigue project. The 24-month project will measure the effectiveness of driving monitoring technology in reducing the incidence of driver distraction, inattention and fatigue episodes. The Motor Accident Insurance Commission have engaged Griffith University's Dr. Darren Wishart to conduct the project and evaluation. The Eyes on Fatigue project will be utilising the Gen 2 Guardian Seeing Machine Systems in the trial. QTA is now seeking expressions of interest from road freight operators who wish to participate in the project. A Queensland University of Technology observational study of electric scooter riding in central Brisbane has found that nearly half of shared e-scooters were being ridden illegally. The research has identified the need to ensure that helmets were available for shared e-scooter riders and called for further research into whether bicycle helmet standards are adequate for e-scooters. In the study, researchers recorded 785 e-scooters, 90% of which were lime shared scooters and 10% were private. Of the e-scooters observed, 45% were being ridden illegally because either the rider was not wearing a helmet properly, riding on the road, or carrying a passenger. The most common illegal behaviour by people riding shared e-scooters related to the use of helmets, with 39% either having no helmet or wearing a helmet that was not 
properly fastened. In comparison, 98% of private bike riders were wearing their helmets correctly. Lime, one of the biggest e-scooter companies, received a permit from the Brisbane City Council to operate in November last year, and there were more than 500,000 trips in the first three months. US technology company DriveWise has launched a notification service that issues an audible tone and visual alert when a truck approaches dangerous curves or low bridges. At present, the rollover alerts are available on targeted exit ramps and curves at 500 locations in 32 US states. The rollover alerts were tested with a sample of driveways customers and revealed a measurable slowdown in the risk areas with a 17% reduction in speeding around exit ramps. For the low bridge warnings, driveways identified 1,500 strike-prone bridges along routes that are commonly used by truck drivers. Driveways sends the alert when the truck approaches a low-clearance bridge that is geofenced in the system. The Toyota Mobility Foundation is to carry out a study on using connected car data to improve road maintenance in Aikawa City in Japan. The study will combine connected car and image data from vehicle video cameras to help local government to shorten lead times to discover dangerous road infrastructure and maintenance issues. As part of the study, Toyota held a conference with the local university and the city's police to develop a sustainable low-cost system for road maintenance. Other topics included traffic safety, traffic congestion and safe mobility in the case of natural disasters. And that has been the news. Last week we talked with Rob Fraser about the Z cars, starting with the 50th anniversary of the 240Z, which really uh, put the cat amongst the pigeons, as the Japanese were doing at the time. They had done it with little cars, and, and were doing it with little cars, such as the Corolla from Toyota, but here is the Japanese with a sports car. But it morphed into... A supercar, in a way, the GTR. Rob has also had a chance of driving them, and he joins us now. Rob, was it a real supercar to you? Oh, very much so, David. Very much so. It was an exceptional experience driving. It was a lot of fun, and something that, that you sort of sit there and go, I can't believe that I'm sitting here driving this car in peak hour Brisbane traffic, just pottering along at 15 k's an hour, talking comfortably as if you were driving a normal sedan or hatchback mm. and yet it put the pedal down and it'll take off and do 0 to 100 in about 2.7 seconds so it is it's a stunning vehicle really how big's the engine it's a v6 3.8 liter and it pumps out a massive almost 420 kilowatts of power that is just huge, isn't it? Yeah. But you said, of course, it was easy to drive. Isn't that the difference? When you go back and look at some of the supercars that uh, we had out here racing at Bathurst, where you had the Falcon and the, and the Monaro V8s, they were lumpy at idle, weren't they? Very much so. Whereas this, this vehicle, as I said, we got, we got stuck in traffic. It just potted along easily at 15 k's an hour, and I could have easily been driving a Toyota Corolla. I had a friend a number of years ago that had a Skyline GTR, and and to the designer or like Mr. GTR, it still is a Skyline to him. <laughs> but he had a Skyline GTR, though the Godzilla version, and he had it modified. You know, I went for a drive in that, and it was almost undrivable. It it was just so hard to handle and so hard to keep moving, and 
it was it was not pleasurable at all. Fast forward a little bit to the 2019 50th anniversary version, and it is the complete opposite. This vehicle is a delight to drive, and it is so simple to drive, and it is so technologically advanced. It's unbelievable. That was one of the criticisms of it, wasn't it? That it is still based, it has some elements, as you said last week about the Z car, still, uh, there's still some elements of the older world of motoring in its design. I think there's a, a lot of carry through in the chassis underneath, but certainly it has been modified in, with a lot of technology as well. You know, if you sit and listed everything through the chassis, through the suspension, through the all wheel drive system, it's just stunning. It's, it's chalk and cheese, even though it may still be riding on the underpinnings that have been there for the last 10 years or so. Are they going to continue with it? Uh, that question was asked at the launch, the same as it was for the 370Z. And there was a, you know, can either comment or, or you know, I, I can't give any sort of comment. But he, he certainly didn't give any indication that it was going to fall by the wayside. And, you know, they're, they're making great strides to bring it uh, into, you know, the, the, the current times. He was asked a question about would there be an electronic version. And he just smiled and said nothing. So we really got nothing out of him at all. <laughs> That's a perfect PR exercise, isn't it? <laughs> he did say with a smile, though, that I must admit that. He made us all feel very good when you rejected everything we were, you asked of him. So. <laughs> it's like a doctor that makes a needle not feel too painful. Yeah, I, true. They weren't cheap. The step from a Z to a GTR was not only a, a magnitude in terms of performance, but there was a magnitude in price. There is a 50th anniversary. One, what are they worth? Around about 210000 plus the usual sort of costs. Now, in isolation, you'd say that's a very expensive car, but when you look at what you have to pay to match the level of sophistication and performance that the Nissan GTR has, you could be looking at $100,000 plus on top of that price to get something the same. And, you know, the other thing, too, is it's the comfort level. Like, it is a 2 plus 2, which I think is ridiculous because you're really never going to put anyone in the back seats and at best you'll be putting some overnight bags in there. But there's there's a fairly large and deep boot area already. So, you know, that's one thing that I would say it's probably against it. But when you compare it to a two-door supercar, one of which we've driven recently, getting in and out of it, sitting in it, and just the visibility and comfort factor for the same level of performance is chalk and cheese. There's a lot of hype around the supercars these days, but would you describe it as a, a the Nissan GTR as being great bang for your buck? Oh, unbelievably so. Yeah. Rob, you know I'm salivating here. I've got one for a longer drive coming up shortly, so we'll have more to chat about after that. Rob Fraser, how good it is to talk to you, and uh, thank you very much for your experiences and feedback on this great car. Thank you, David. And that was Rob Fraser, who does some various motoring from the outback, but in this case, anyauto.com.au is the site that reflects the broader aspects from uh, the enjoyment of the sports car through to the practicality of the more bargain basement type of vehicles. You're listening to Overdrive. I went along to the monthly Machines and Macchiatos car show held in the Harbord Bowling Club car park 
and supporting Bear Cottage and Help Cure Brain Cancer charities. A wonderful event with classic and modern cars representing a very wide range of different vehicles. I took along the latest Suzuki Jimny, a little boxy four-wheel drive shaped like a traditional Jeep, but in the style of a mini-me. We parked it next to a similar vehicle from a different era. It was a Daihatsu F20JV. Melissa Lee is a co-owner of the vehicle. We caught up during the week. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Now, how important to you is the technology? It's a three-cylinder, I believe. Are you a rev head? Is that an important part of you owning this car? <laughs> Far from it. I don't know anything about cars. This is a complete love affair with this car and definitely did not buy it for its rev capabilities. It potters along and that is just how I like it. When did you buy it? Earlier this year in April from a guy out in Goulburn. Now, what year is it? It's a 1981. I think that makes it older than you. <laughs> Only by a few years, but yes, just in there, it's a little bit older than me. What put you on to this type of vehicle? It was quite a funny one. My partner and I aren't really into cars at all, but we were in Indonesia in November last year and saw quite a few of them cruising around on the streets there, and we both just fell in love with them. We thought they were a cute little Jeep. Yeah, we got back to Australia, and we started looking online, and they're far and few between, definitely. And um, when one popped up, we quickly organised to go out to Goulburn and check it out, and here we are. Do you get responses to it? It's weird. We didn't expect to get the attention that we do. I mean, it's she's bright yellow, so she does grab your attention at first, but... It's random. People tend to stop us and want to chat and wave and smile as we drive past. So, yeah, we're pretty stoked with it. It's a way of discovering another world. I haven't driven manual uh, for very long. Only the last three years and learning on a new car, it's super easy. So it's definitely a whole new world in the fact that it's such a basic drive. You feel everything and there's no mod cons. So it's definitely a different aspect on driving. It's got the four gears. It doesn't have all the, the mod cons of, you know, hill start assist. So it's sort of teaching myself that you've really got to know what you're doing um, driving this kind of manual. But it's a lot of fun. It's definitely something that you want to drive on the weekends. You wouldn't want it as your everyday car because um, I think you'd be missing, you know, power steering and AC and all those luxuries. It's beautifully restored. It was in um, absolute immaculate condition when we purchased it. Um, we were quite surprised. It only had just over 100,000 Ks for a car built in 1981. So that was a plus. And, yeah, not a lick of rust on her. She's been so well looked after and loved. So we're going to try and keep her that way for the years to come. What sort of responses did you get at the car show? It was really well received. We were actually quite surprised. You know, we obviously got there thinking there's going to be quite charged up big cars and, you know, everyone there is going to know what they're talking about. So we're a little bit hesitant, but I think, it, you know, the car was really well received. People tend to flock over to us and have a million questions and just more curiosity as to where we found it and it, it being in such perfect condition. So definitely I felt like it was a bit of a winner. It was parked next to the new Jimny. Did you have a look at that vehicle? Yeah, I did. I actually um, had a bit of a peek inside and I quite, you know, like how compact they are, but they look really sturdy. Um, but I heard there's quite a long waiting list 
uh, to purchase one because I'd actually had a look at one for myself quite a few months ago. So, yeah, it was cool to see one in the flesh. So you think you will keep yours for how long? The Dahatsu? Oh, I, I don't plan on getting rid of that for a very long time. I think I want this one around for, for years to come. And you brought great character to the car show. Motoring is a wide culture to it. And do you think that you've touched on a sense of motoring in the past in that time before you were born? I think it kind of makes me appreciate more how well the cars were made and they had so much more character. I just feel like things are so mass produced these days and I just feel like every single car there had its own story, it had its own personality, and um, yeah, it, it reflects, I think, the owners as well. Melissa, thank you for taking the time. I know earlier we had a few technical problems and you <laughs> persevered through those wonderfully. I appreciate it. Thanks again. My pleasure. No worries. And that was Melissa Lee, a co-owner of a 1981 Daihatsu four-wheel drive, beautifully restored, wonderful, full-rich Juco on it. It's, it's a lovely car. And as she says, it touches on a sense of motoring, not just grease under your fingernails, but a love for a particular period which has its own character. You're listening to Overdrive. And it's time to talk some of the more unusual stories in this wonderful world of motoring and transport. Brian Smith is on the line. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Yeah, you've got a lovely story about bicycles. Yeah, it's uh, it's about cargo bikes, actually, David, which are the, the kind of larger version of uh, bicycles with usually a big hopper or something like that on the front uh, and used for carrying cargo or children. Transport for London... Um, has uh, just done a process of, of identifying the uh, the best cargo bikes for sustainable business deliveries and family trips. And the two winners, Doos with their G4E uh, bike and Backfits, um, they jointly won best cargo bike, uh, which is going to allow them to to use an endorsement from uh, Transport for London in their marketing. So. Um, cargo bikes, as we said, sometimes two wheels at the front. Sometimes they're like an extra long version of a of a normal bicycle with a big uh, carrying bin in the front. They're increasingly being used in cities, particularly in London, um, for deliveries. So uh, where sort of the white vans are struggling to get through the traffic, these cargo bikes can efficiently and often electrically um, powered uh, can. Uh, uh, weave through the traffic and be much more efficient at delivering quite, pardon me, quite large um, uh, cargoes. Uh, some of them can, um, uh, you know, can carry sort of 70 or 80 kilos and people use them to put their children in as well and to take them to school. So Transport for London hoping to uh, uh, promote the use of cargo bikes uh, in their city uh, has uh, funded this competition, and it would be great to see it. Uh, you see cargo bikes used more often in Australian cities, David. Of course, we have electric cargo bikes, and I think that's a big difference, isn't it? That it gives you the chance to not necessarily be powered all the time, but certainly powered up a hill. How much more important is that if you're carrying a cargo? So that's the technology that's helping you expand this area. Indeed, um, and and. The cargo bikes are heavy and much heavier than uh, than a normal bike, and so having the ability to have them 
uh, electrically supported. The e-bikes are, are uh, growing in popularity in Australia. Um, they make cargo bikes much more practical. Now they are they're awkward and wieldy. Um, they won't really fit in uh, many bike parking racks or not necessarily in the lift at your apartment. So they take a little bit of, of getting used to. But it, I tell you what, David, it's something that I am interested in. I would quite happily buy a cargo bike to be able to do some of the travel around um, my local area, uh, which is quite steep and hilly. Um, much more easily on the bike rather than having to take a car and and they're quite expensive things they they really start at three or four thousand dollars and go up more than ten thousand dollars so not a small investment but as you say the uh, electric technology is really unlocking their potential they do have various things the load 60 touring hs is a and it's been reviewed we're going to change the whole notion of road tests, aren't we? A spacious yeah. front end stores cargo and child seats. So your little fella, um, the, the youngest of your three, you could uh, put in there. And I, I presume that means it's a reasonable seat. You're not sort of putting him in a cargo box. Yeah, they have. Um, it's essentially a large box that you can configure a few different ways. So it can be a proper child seat. It can be just a bench. Uh, inside the box some of them have covers to to protect the children in the rain they're a fantastic idea i encourage everyone to have a look at uh, a cargo bike particularly an electric one it's very important in cities where we're talking about even perhaps doing the sort of depot outside the city where the deliveries are broken up and so you don't have a van with 20 parcels that circles around and goes everywhere, but you might well take them out separately. I looked at the road test of the Extra Cycle RFA Utility and it's designed to evolve around your changing needs. It's starting to sound like cars, isn't it? It is. It's adjustable dropouts allow you to shorten and lengthen the wheelbase by 5.5 inches. The shorter layout, dubbed the RFA Sport, Oh, this is this is fantastic. <laughs> Comes with a shorter rear deck, and so it goes on. The bikes feel sturdy and stiff, and the component spec is similarly customised with options for motors, batteries, and accessories. Now, the the options, the price of that in American dollars, I think, is four thousand four hundred and ninety-seven, four and a half thousand dollars. But the price as tested was six thousand eight hundred dollars. That that sounds like an option list from Audi. <laughs> did, it, did it come with automatic for two thousand extra? <laughs> yeah, you know. Do you do you want different coloured pedals? That'll be five hundred dollars. You know, David. I think the great thing about these cargo bikes uh, is if we begin to road test more bikes, you can be talking about the small little bikes and these larger ones. Dean will correct you on small little, <laughs> an expression I often use, and he has done that. But I'm worried, Brian. I'm worried that it will change comedy, particularly British comedy. When you look at the little guy, the poor, poor downtrodden guy on the push bike, like Granville in Open All Hours, played by David Jansen, now you're starting to get these super bikes with elegant designs and options and motors. That Will they go for bigger motors? Will you be able to spin the wheels? You know, there's a whole thing. Now you go back, movies. Delivery Boys, 1984 movie. Uh, a multi-ethnic group of pizza delivery boys who start a breakdancing team. Have you seen it, Brian? Uh, no, I haven't. I must, I must check it out, though, David, your recommendation. 
I haven't seen it, but I note that it stars, uh, inverted commas, stars a number of people, Mario Van Pebbles, I've never heard of him, but Samantha Fox as well. So clearly it's it's an upmarket, if not. Uh, but so, we, we might change it. Love on Delivery was another movie, I don't know when, but uh, it was uh, Stephen Chow, I believe, was the guy. So, well, you know, I mean, look at Fast and Furious movie franchise. All that muscle could be justified by riding bikes. Indeed, and I think if we go back to sort of uh, BJ and the Bear and the other sort of buddy truck driver movies, oh, um, you know, it'd be great to to start seeing bicycles replacing big trucks in that. And uh, once they're accepted in the movies, then I guess much more accepted in uh, normal life. What happens if delivery bikes were designed by car designers, if it was Lotus? Lotus Ah, made its name on being light, uh, you know, very light and cutting down on materials. They also, their racing cars tended to break. Quite a number of people were killed. But that, what happens if you had the Sanyong designer (laughs) <laughs> the square wheel version well Peugeot of course uh, famously uh, was a bike manufacturer as well mm. um, so it's not it, you certainly seeing some new brands here like Backfeet's a, a, a Dutch uh, company um, and so there's a lot of European uh, influence here and I, I wonder when they come to Australia will there be a sort of a, instead of Ford Holden kind of arguments in the playground it'd be between the European bikes and the Japanese or American bikes, all of them will be heavy. I think that's the... (laughs) The Japanese ones will have lights underneath. Yes, cassette player. I noticed the Big Easy is uh, one which is called the Heavy Duty Hauler, and it's described as the Cadillac of e-cargo. Ah, see. 26-inch tyres and a powerful Bosch motor. It's been described... I think it's actually brand name, uh, model name is Surly. (laughs) perfect for in the city attitude well well we've lost all those delivery bikes in the city have 